0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long haul truck, RV, camper taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hi, y'all, to everyone checking us out on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hi to those of you still using the Conspiracy Show app. No longer available in the Apple Store or on Google Play, but if you have it, hold on to it, because once you delete it, you won't get it back. If it still works, keep using it. I'm glad you're joining us. And, well, thanks for uh, all of you on YouTube watching us on the live stream, as well as those faithful assembled in the live stream chat room. God bless you. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you. For your fine company, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, best-selling author, researcher, investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields, including hauntings, psychic skills, and protection, afterlife studies and spirit communication, cryptids, alien contact, interdimensional aspects of our extraordinary experiences. She has now more than, I believe it's 70 books published on a wide range of topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference work. Her work is translated into 17 languages. She is president and owner of Visionary Living, Inc., a publishing and media production company that includes Visionary Living Publishing and its imprints. She is executive editor of Fate Magazine. Her latest titles include Fate Presents Mysteries of the Afterlife and Fate Presents Slips in Time and Space. Rosemary Mary Ellen Guiley, how do you have time to come on my show? How are you?
1: I love being on your show, Richard. <laughs> we're out in California for a while. We're just winding up about a month long trip. And we, in fact, we just got back from Las Vegas. We were out on a research and working weekend. We were able to take in Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum while we were there. So we got a little ah, fun, too.
0: Fantastic. Yes, I saw that on Facebook. I've been uh, trolling you on Facebook, actually. No, <laughs> But I've been following your exploits all the way from New Orleans for Mardi Gras all the way to uh, California. I love that picture. You were at a stoplight, and you looked out the window. There was Jay Leno.
1: I know. What a shock. And I just happened to have my cell phone in my hand. I was sitting in the back seat. We were in an Uber en route to our dinner on Sunset Boulevard, our our restaurant. And Joe looked over and said, oh, my gosh, it's Jay Leno. And uh, I was able to get a quick snap in just as the light changed. So the back of his car is a little blurry because he's pulling away. And unfortunately, he zoomed ahead of us, so we were never able to get, you know, right alongside of him. But uh, it's always fun, you know, when you're spotting celebrities in L.A.,
0: Absolutely. And uh, no mistaking that chin. Heart, yeah, he stands out, that's for sure, behind the wheel of one of his vintage automobiles. What does he have, uh, like a 100 cars or something? It's quite a collection.
1: Oh, my gosh, yes. In fact, a friend of mine who lives out there said that she sees him driving around Burbank a lot. I guess he keeps a lot of them in Burbank.
0: I wanted to ask you about this story that I heard a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, it's near and dear to uh, my family. Of course, my children, half Greek. My lovely bride is Greek, Greek Greek-Canadian. And that has to do with Alexander the Great, of course, Macedonian, northern Greece, uh, who, uh, you know, ruled most of the known world once upon a time. And now we're hearing. I had always thought that he had succumbed to malaria or something. And there are theories that maybe he was poisoned. But now we're hearing that he may have actually been in some sort of a state of paralysis and may have been alive for six days after death. In other words, he was buried alive. Tell me about this.
1: It's an interesting theory, and the claims were made, uh, even in ancient times, that Alexander the Great did not decompose for six days after his death. Maybe we should say his alleged death. This theory, who was put forward by a researcher in New Zealand, who she says she spent six months researching this, that maybe what he died from was a neurological disorder. I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Guillain-Barré syndrome. Right. And it causes paralysis. And what her case is, is that when he went into this paralysis, his breathing became... So shallow it might not have even been noticeable, and people just thought he was dead. And it took him six days in that state to finally expire. Now, this theory has been put forward before. She's not the first one to do it. And it was kind of dismissed. And the thing is, Richard, I don't think we'll ever really know, because as you mentioned, there have been so many other theories as to what killed him. Now, he died in Babylon. He was marching into Babylon. He was actually told by Chaldean astrologers not to come into the city because it would be fatal to him, so he was forewarned of his own death. He did have to go through a swampy area, so maybe that makes the case for malaria. There were also theories that he was poisoned with strychnine, that he had some other kind of infectious disease. Maybe it might have been acute pancreatitis brought on by too much alcohol. All kinds of theories which can never be proved.
0: Of course, no, um, no, not without a body.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing, and I did some research on decomposition when I was studying vampirism, and human bodies decompose differently, and it has to do not only with your age, your physical condition, but what you died of. Certain diseases, for example, might slow the decomposition process. So whatever he died of, it might have been something that just slowed that decomposition process. And the Plutarch talked about him being embalmed by the Egyptians, but we don't know exactly when that happened. And the Egyptians didn't embalm people right away, I don't think. So it's a mystery, and it's a mystery I don't think we'll ever solve. But that's the latest theory in the mix.
0: There you go. Well, that's my worst fear. And I know a lot of people would share that. It's not something that we have to worry about as much today. And that is, you know, being buried alive. But, you know, during the Victorian era, it happened. And this sort of led to this whole idea of the graveyard shift where people would sit around in cemeteries, you know, listening to make sure no one was buried alive. They would listen for the screams of those recently buried. But Can you imagine anything worse, Rosemary?
1: I think it would be one of a person's deepest fears. And sadly, it probably did happen to people that they came back to consciousness, finding themselves buried alive. And there was another practice, too, back then to have a bell on top of the ground and a string going into the casket. And that hopefully if someone did revive in that condition, they would be able to pull the bell and that could be heard by one of the cemetery caretakers. You have to assume, however, that somebody's going to be around to hear that bell.
0: You would hope. And, and hence the term dead ringer. That's where that came from.
1: <laughs> dead ringer. You're absolutely right. And there are so many uh, conditions that can cause, um, you know, pseudo death or pseudothanatosis, as it's called. Uh, and, and in earlier times, they didn't have all the sophisticated measurements that we have now. Um, if it just appeared that a person had stopped breathing, they were often presumed dead. We don't know from uh, Alexander the Great's case uh, if his body was still warm. If Even if he had a neurological disorder that paralyzed him, his body would have still been warm. And so you would think that that might be a clue to people, um, people examining individuals for signs of death, that uh, even if breath was not apparent, uh, the body wouldn't be uh, cold and, and be turning blue.
0: Right, right. Uh, on a related note, what about this poor woman, 62? Uh, I believe, was this in Russia? She was uh, wrongly pronounced dead. Uh, she wakes up in the morgue. They discover that she's still alive and then she dies of hypothermia.
1: Such a sad story. And she was a grandmother, 62 years old. Um, she was drinking with relatives at a party, and um, she might have just passed out from too much alcohol. And this might be another case of apparent lack of breathing. People thought she was dead. Um, a policeman is called, and. He certifies her as dead himself without a calling any medical authorities, so she 's taken away to the morgue and lays there for a while and then she revives um, Now they did try to resuscitate her, but she had uh suffered so much uh, damage from uh, hypothermia from being in the morgue that she wound up passing away anyway, which is a very sad ending to um a death that really didn't need to happen
0: no it is now this is something that that that, that seems to be more common uh, it doesn't happen a lot in North America but in certainly in developing countries, the developing world, and once in a while in europe we we hear these stories I would say almost. What? Maybe once every three or four months. There seems to be one of these. Uh, You know, people that have misdiagnosed, if you will, the ultimate misdiagnosis, waking up in a morgue. Uh And again, you know, imagine now not quite as dire circumstances waking up in a coffin six feet under. But that's got to be absolutely, you know, frightening. I mean, I wonder how many people actually wake up in a morgue and then die of a heart attack because they're so... Frightened.
1: Well, you know, they do keep a, a lot of the bodies in these, uh, like, drawers uh, or body racks. And if you were placed on um, a, a rack and then shoved into to one of these drawers, it would be like waking up in a coffin. And I would think that that would be a very high risk, that you would, uh, your severe panic would throw you into something fatal like a heart attack.
0: Right, right. Got to ask you about uh you know I, you and I have talked about um, um demonic possession many times over the years, but there seems to be a real uptick in the number of exorcisms going on uh in and uh, even the current pope uh is is talking about um talking about uh, you know the need for more exorcists in the Vatican. What do you think is going on here?
1: I think there's a number of things going on, and some of it's fueled, at least in this country and in some other Western countries, um, fueled by um, the media and some of these paranormal reality shows that want to put a demonic emphasis on everything. Uh, so people start to get fearful that there's a lurking demonic danger and that somehow they could be at risk and that... Uh, any troubles that they have, any troubles, um, even with natural explanations, can then be projected onto demonic interference. And whenever you have unstable times, and there is a lot of social instability in our country, uh, in parts of the, of the Western world, and in many countries, that Raises uh, fear in the population, and that fear does get projected onto a common devil, so to speak, literally. Uh, and so we find increases in uh, in cases like this. Interestingly, even though um, and now the Catholic Church, I, I might as an as an aside, has gone up and down over history in its emphasis on exorcisms. They were hugely popular in the 1700s. Uh, somewhat in the 1600s, uh, during a time after the Reformation when the Protestants and Catholics were battling for religious territory, uh, there was quite an emphasis on exorcisms and in terms of who can do it better, us or them, so to speak. Uh, and then when we get into the Age of Science and uh, Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, uh, these were considered superstitious practices, and they were... Um, uh, suppressed, uh, and then they started coming back again in modern times. And uh, the media and, and some many psychologists will often lay the blame at that uh, at the feet of Hollywood in movies like The Exorcist. But interestingly, even though the Pope has called for more exorcists to meet the demand, literally, um, it, it's not Catholics who are primarily having the problems. It's uh, it's other faiths that are. Once again, we're seeing like this competition with with the Catholics for driving out the devil. And some of it comes from the fundamentalist Protestant and the Pentecostals, Charismatics, uh, who have um, rituals for driving out the devil. And from other parts of the world, like Latin America and Africa, where you've got um, things like Santeria, voodoo, tribal uh, practices, which also have a lot of rituals for driving away evil spirits, and the belief in evil spirits would be fairly high, uh, that um, they would be considered to be common uh, interference agents uh, in people's lives. So I think there are, are all of these factors at play here, and uh, how long this trend is going to last remains to be seen. But certainly on the, in Western media, we have all of these paranormal reality shows, which are emphasizing the demonic, and it's not just ghosts anymore. It's got to be evil spirits and demons that are plaguing places and people, and and that encourages other people to think along those lines, and then to project that onto their own issues.
0: Sort of a mass hysteria.
1: Um, it could. I think some of these cases are the result of mass hysteria. Um, where do we draw the line between an actual knowing how much of these uh, situations are due to um, an actual increase in demonic interference versus people's belief in an increase in
0: But do you, be- you be- rare though they may be, do you believe that there are genuine cases of demonic possession?
1: I do. And... M- I still think that they're in the minority. I think it does happen uh, in unusual cases where uh, the boundaries around a person, for whatever reason, are completely ruptured, and um, they are preyed upon by evil spirits that start taking them over mentally and emotionally uh, and then physically. Um, in some cultures, this is believed to be kind of a common thing that um, you could fall prey to evil spirits fairly easily. I don't think it's as prevalent as a lot of people would uh, might believe, based upon their exposure to to this in the media. Be that as as it may, there is uh, and has been now for some years. Um, a, a demand for more exorcism services in the Catholic Church has not been able to meet that demand uh, among their own own followers, and uh, so there is an emphasis now on training more priests in exorcism.
0: I um, I, I know a, a Protestant pastor uh, who claims that his phone is ringing off the hook, that he he just can't keep up with the number of of cases. Now, he's not just exercising um, individuals. Primarily, he's going into homes and exercising them, and he maintains that there are no such things as uh, as ghosts. If you have some sort of activity like that, it it is demonic, full stop. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I disagree. Uh, I think that... um there are lots of haunted places that have just plain residual activity. It's non-interactive. It doesn't have an intelligent locus point to it. Uh, it's there as a psychic recording, and that's what you're most likely to find uh, when you have some activity in a place. When when you have interactive spirits, um, it is it is my opinion that yes, a lot of them are tricksters, or um, they're uh, upset. Um, you know, they're agents of upset, uh, and some of them seem to like to mess around with people. But but the full on demonic attack, which would be perceived from a Christian perspective as uh, some sort of agent of Satan um out to destroy a person and that person's soul uh I think is is uh still a case in the minority.
0: I gotta ask you about what's going on in Ukraine. Chernobyl, of course, had horrific nuclear meltdown at the reactor there back in the mid eighties. And uh now people are moving back into that area, even though as far as I know, radiation levels are still Uh, in the danger zone. What's going on there, Rosemary?
1: It's a puzzling situation, and you wonder how people could voluntarily go back to such a contaminated area. That was in 1986, and it was probably the world's worst nuclear disaster in history. Um, Ten days, this damaged reactor for ten days spewed out this high level of radiation into the countryside, and thousands of people uh, were um, contaminated. Uh, they died. Some of them died fairly quickly. Uh, some of them died or, uh, much later uh, as they stayed in the area and contracted various forms of cancer. Children died. Uh, a huge area around Chernobyl was literally quarantined and uh, left just as wreckage. And now people are creeping back in. Uh, and they're even growing crops and eating the food that they raise. They, they've they got animals uh, that are grazing on this land, and they're eating the, the meat of the animals, uh, and nobody knows what the long-term effects are going to be, and what some of these people are saying is that, well, uh, they're poor, for one thing, and the land is very cheap. Uh, people just Abandon it wholesale, and uh, so they can buy lots of land very inexpensively. some feel that they have nowhere else to go. One elderly woman who was interviewed even made the odd comment that well, even though they might be exposed to fatal radiation, it was better than being bombed or shot in a war uh, and, which is a curious juxtaposition of you know choices of death. Um, and right. uh, there was another man interviewed who said, hey, I've been living here now uh, for years with me and my wife and we're fine. We eat our crops and our animals and nothing has happened to them yet. And uh, I, I think that this does not bode well, that people will develop uh, forms of cancer. There will be birth defects. From a paranormal perspective, Richard, I wonder what's lurking around that landscape.
0: All right, Rosemary, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about people who are returning to uh, live in Chernobyl, the area uh, around that dangerous reactor, nuclear reactor. We'll also talk about celebrities who've had near-death experiences. uh, And imagine spending 20 days in total isolation. We'll talk about that as well. Pitch darkness on a bet. 20 days. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Coming to you live from the little studio beneath the stairs here in Thornhill above Toronto. And uh, Ian Robertson back in Liberty Village behind the big audio board. Uh, my story producer, Albert, on assignment. And Ryan is um, producing the live stream from his lair. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us for the full hour. A little bit later, we'll talk about black mirror scrying, this form of divination. Right now, we're doing our monthly paranormal news roundup. Chernobyl, of course, had horrific nuclear meltdown at the reactor in uh, Ukraine back in the mid-80s. Now, people are moving back into that area
1: well, whenever you have a disaster like that and mass deaths that result, uh, even if some of them didn't happen right away, just tied to that event, uh, it it creates this heavy thought form um, coalesced energy that could lodge in that landscape, literally in the land itself and the ruins that, that are still there. And there could be all kinds of haunting phenomena going on, which um, due to the the um, nature of the disaster and the, the type of death that people endured from radiation poisoning uh, could be quite uh, horrific in terms of, of the haunting presences in the landscape. There could be uh, apparitions of the dead. There could be even mutant forms phantom forms roaming the landscape no one's done any research on that yet i would be very curious about that
0: well no one wants to get close to the scene uh but imagine how desperate someone would have to be uh in order to uh buy a home and live in um you know next to chernobyl uh and and expose themselves to that deadly radiation that's a very sad situation uh I want to ask you about, recently, uh, a number of people have, uh, have, celebrities have come out and talked about their near-death experiences. Well, some of them, it happened quite a while ago, but it's just being reported uh, within the last few months. And one of them, one of the more high-profile fi- high celebrities who discussed her near-death experience was the late Elizabeth Taylor. I guess she... Uh, came out uh, on the Oprah Winfrey Show back in 1992. So let's chat a little bit about celebrities' near-death experiences or after-life, after-death experiences.
1: Uh, they do conform to uh, things that many people describe in NDEs. And um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor described seeing it. It was uh, during one of her operations, and she had so many operations during the course of her life And um, she um, went into a tunnel. She saw herself leaving her body. And um, she saw her third husband, who was Mike Todd. And she said that she was so happy to see him. Um, And he had died in 1958. Now, her experience happened in the early 60s, uh, one of her famous back surgeries. And... She kind of wanted to stay with him, but he told her that she uh, couldn't, that she had to fight to go back. Uh, She had a lot of things she still had to do, and so she uh, returned to her body, and then she woke up, um, and she discovered that that the doctors thought she had actually permanently died, and they had even pronounced her dead. This is uh, very common where if, if someone dies in a hospital setting, the first thing that they become aware of is that they're, detached from their body, they're often looking down on the operating scene, watching the medical uh, team around them, then they start to pull further and further away, they may go through a tunnel, they may not, um, and then they have inter- frequently interactions with um, loved ones who are on the other side, and for example, the um, actor, uh, I think he's a comedian too, um
0: Tracy Morgan.
1: That's it. Tracy Morgan. I can yes. you think of his first name. Yes. Saturday
0: Night Live name, Tracy alumnus. Yes.
1: Yeah, yes. He meets his father uh, who died. And oftentimes the person will have the desire to stay. Everything seems so pleasant. And they're so happy to, to reunite. They want to stay. And his father told him, no, you can't. And he said he even had a conversation with God. And that God told him, he said, your room ain't ready yet. <laughs> I thought that was... <laughs> Uh, an amusing way to put it is like you know your room here here in the afterlife uh, you can't come here yet. it ain't ready yet. Exactly. and people are often told that they have to go back. sometimes they're given a choice, but sometimes they're told you can't you can't stay. You really do have to go back because there are things you haven't uh, done yet
0: and uh, Jane Seymour, a British actress. Uh what happened to her she she had kind of a, an anaphyl she went into anaphylactic shock or something after re- receiving um, i guess they tried to administer an antibiotic and it went into her vein yeah. instead of her muscle Uh
1: yes and I didn't realize that you could put antibiotics into uh to muscle but yes it sent her into anaphylactic shock and uh, she was resuscitated. She said that she saw a white light. This is also another common uh, description. And she, too, was detached from her body, looking down. She saw herself uh, in the bedroom with a nurse. And uh, frequently they'll see medical professionals trying to revive the body very mm. frantically. And uh, she felt very calm about it. Um, she said that afterwards she had a whole new perspective on life this is a very common change that um, people come back convinced of the afterlife if if they had any doubts in the past uh, they're not afraid of dying anymore and their values change in life um, as she put it you know it's uh, the material things aren't important anymore and she said it's It's not about the yachts and the houses and even awards like an an actress might get. Um, She said it's all about love, and that's the important thing, the love that you share with family and friends, the difference you make in the lives of other people. So that's a tremendous shift in values that a lot of NDE people have.
0: Right. I've read in cases where um, marriages have broken up as a result of an NDE because, as you say, the character, that person changes so fundamentally, it's like you're you're living with a different person.
1: In fact, the divorce rate is quite high among NDE experiencers and uh, for those reasons that they just literally um, become different people and their spouses have a hard time understanding that. Maybe a plunge into spirituality that, that had not been present in the relationship before. Um, they don't. Uh, they may feel um, a sort of materially abandoned because, let's say, um, you know, the principal breadwinner in the family uh, doesn't feel a need to go out and, and you know make tons of money anymore. It's not about getting the next big house. Uh, they, right, they want right. to do something more compassionate and humanitarian
0: i got to ask you quickly. Uh, we're just about out of time here. But this gentleman who took on a bet, he he bet that he could survive 20 days in pitch darkness, in total isolation. He didn't make it. He didn't last the whole 20 days. W- why would anyone do that? And what happened?
1: It all revolved around money. And uh, this was with a fellow poker player. And they, they engaged in something called a prop bet, which uh, is is basically, it's not during a poker game, but it's something else you challenge somebody to do. It's kind of like to test your resolve and metal uh, sort of thing. And so the bet was made hundred they each put up a hundred thousand dollars that wow. um, this one fellow could last for 30 days in total darkness. And at, at about 20 days, he was still doing very well. and so the other guy who stood to lose a thousand dollars was able to, uh, talk him into a buyout uh, of sixty some thousand dollars, and uh, now during this time in darkness, um, he was given food, but at irregular intervals. They didn't want him to have a sense of a passage of time, uh, and that uh, that can make a difference in how well you you weather something. Uh, he may have been able to track it, they think, uh, through outside noises, but um, the thing is that this guy was really playing with fire because individuals who have been deprived of light and communication and human contact, if it goes on long enough, they go insane, they even die uh, wow so well, let's let 's pick
0: this up on the other side, rosemary, because this is this will be a nice segue uh, into uh black. Mirror scrying. We'll talk about that as well. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarek. Don't go away. Gentleman who made a bet, $100,000, that he could immerse himself in total isolation, pitch darkness for 30 days. You were saying that he lasted like 20 days and was doing quite well. You said the risk, though, that someone who does this could risk insanity or even death. How so?
1: Well, for example, in Philadelphia, there was a big prison called Eastern State Penitentiary. And it's closed as a prison now. It's a historical place and very popular with ghost hunters. But during the early days, some of the prisoners had severe isolation imposed upon them. This was like a Quaker approach. And they were deprived of human contact. They could not speak. And they were not spoken to. And while they were not in total darkness, their cells were dark. These sentences would go on for some time, like a year or more. The belief was, and the Quakers were big on silence, of course, and they still practice silence in their religious services. So their attitude was, well, you force somebody into isolation like that, they've got plenty of time to contemplate their bad ways, and this is how they're going to make the change to rehabilitate themselves. It was a disaster, because depending upon the fortitude of the prisoners, some of them didn't last very long. They had psychotic breakdowns, permanent insanity. They became ill. Some of them died. It was such a disaster that the program was scrapped after a while. Human beings are not made to be deprived of light, communication, and human contact. Now, this fellow who survived the 20 days, he's feeling pretty good about it, and he said he was even willing to entertain higher bets to go longer. He said, oh, he thought he could do 40 days. It's playing with fire, and he might be able to pull it off once, maybe twice, but it would be at risk to his well-being. Some years ago, I took a trip to Egypt, and it was one of these spiritual pilgrimage kind of trips, and we had a Mm -hmm. night inside the Great Pyramid in the King's Chamber. We got to go all through the interior of the pyramid, and then the night ended in the King's Chamber, where we had a, you know, kind of a spiritual ritual of rebirth, and part of that was to sit in total darkness for just an hour after the ritual, and when they flashlights were extinguished and this total darkness descended. It was scary because in total darkness, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And so, of course, if you keep your eyes open, the eyes will start playing tricks. You start seeing things. You can imagine what somebody in total darkness for days on end could be going through.
0: Because if the brain is robbed of any external stimuli, it will start manufacturing its own, right?
1: It will, and your inner demons literally could come out and get projected into the environment. So that hour was one of the longest hours I had to sit in total darkness like that. I was very glad when the lights came on. I can't imagine doing that for 20 days It's kind of disturbing to see someone think that it's like no big deal. I I don't think he realizes what the potential dangers are.
0: Right. I've done the, uh, the tranquility tank where you're in the dark, but you're floating in a sort of a saline solution. It's quite peaceful. And to do an hour, you know, there's no sound except the dripping water. But I can't imagine doing, you know, more than an hour of that. Now, this is kind of an interesting segue into black mirror scrying. Because the idea of staring into a black mirror for the purposes of divination, first of all, explain how that works and what the mirror looks like and what its purpose is.
1: Well, a black mirror is a piece of glass that's been coated black on the reverse side instead of silvered. And it creates a shiny surface that has a dull black look to it. It's been used in occultism for centuries as a way of contacting the spirit world. And before that, before we had mirrors, people used dark things like dark bowls filled with water or ink, black stones that were uh, rubbed to be shiny, even soot and oil mixed together on the hand. People in ancient times discovered that gazing into a shiny surface does something to the consciousness that seems to open the gateways to the spirit world. And You can have contact for prophecy and divination and contact with the dead. So in today's times, the black mirror is used primarily as a tool for contacting the dead. It can be used for divination and other kinds of psychic work. And by gazing into it steadily in kind of a a very unfocused way, it does fatigue the eyes and it does something to the psychic faculty so that Your natural psychic ability starts coming forward and you can start having visions and you can hear things and feel things. If you set your intention to contact the dead and ask to meet someone, for example, who has passed to the other side, you may be able to have some kind of contact with them.
0: Rosemary, we'll take a quick time. I'll come back and continue to delve into the divination technique of black mirror scrying. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Hey, just a reminder, next week on the program, uh, Derek Robinson, Robinson uh, will be with me for the full two hours. Uh, he's the president of an organization uh, that helps targeted individuals, and he uh, believes he is a long-standing Targeted individuals. So Derek Robinson, uh, next week on the conspiracy show, talking about mind control and uh, surveillance, uh, uh, voice to skull technology, etc., etc. All right, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. We're talking about a divination technique uh, called black mirror scrying. Nostradamus used this, did he not?
1: He did. He used a bowl filled with dark liquid. And in some reports, it's a bowl filled with ink, and in other versions, the bowl filled with blood. It probably was ink. And he would stare into it. It was a big bowl, and it was uh, on a tripod, and uh, he would sit in uh, his darkened uh, study and stare into it. And then these visions arose that he recorded in his famous prophecies. And this is a process that can happen for anyone who gazes into a dark, shiny surface, like a, a, a black mirror. And the visions may appear on the surface of the mirror, like you're looking at a television screen, for example. Uh, or they may see very little in the actual mirror itself, but um, these psychic impressions are seen in. In an interior way, on the mental screen, people may hear messages and hear very distinct voices. Uh, there are external phenomena that can happen as well. Uh, I've had many cases where uh, there have been poltergeist-like effects that break out in a room of people scrying. Uh, apparitions appear. Uh, people feel touched. Uh, it can be, for some people, a very emotional experience. But uh, it's a technique of opening up natural psychic abilities. And so the mirror itself is is just a tool. Uh, it activates your psychic ability and then the results then depend on how an individual gets psychic impressions and information.
0: We should point out you've written extensively on this subject and you have a book called The Art of Black Mirror Scrying and people can... Order that through your uh, bookshop at VisionaryLiving.com. Now, have you tried this? Have you have you uh, practiced the art of black mirror scrying, Rosemary?
1: I have for quite some time, Richard. I became interested in, in the black mirrors back in the 1980s, around the late 1980s, after reading accounts of how shiny surfaces were used in uh, divination uh, and occultism uh, for contacting the spirit world, and also for developing psychic ability, because if you use one repeatedly, it does sharpen up the psychic faculty. And then in the 1990s, I became very interested when Raymond Moody, who popularized the term near-death experience, he coined the term near-death experience, uh, came out with a book called Reunions, and Dr. Moody had discovered on his own uh, the ancient art of crystal gazing, using a shiny surface uh, to to contact the spirit world, and uh, he coined the term psychomantium, place of spirit, uh, and felt that using a, a, a black mirror had some therapeutic benefits, because he found in experimenting with people that when individuals had contact with the dead and they got some reassuring message or even just the contact itself, it alleviated a lot of their grief and worry about the well-being of loved ones on the other side. And uh, so I took some training from Dr. Moody on his psychomantium uh, technique and process and uh, applied it to my own work that, that I was already doing with Black Mirror's And then um, I discovered just in talking about black mirrors in my lectures and and workshops that other people were very interested in doing this and learning about it, too. So um, my husband Joe and I started making black mirrors for our classes because I I couldn't find a good commercial source of them. Uh, And we started teaching other people how to scry, which is um it's an old middle english term which means to discern dimly and I, I like that term scry because there's a mystery and a power to it and we've been doing that now for i oh, know about 6 or 7 years uh on a, a concerted um, effort um, we have um quite a bit of demand for that and uh, we've traveled all over the country um, we're going to be taking it into england uh, this year as well. Ancient technique has just been be, imagined.
0: There has to be more to it than, other than just staring into um, you know, a, a blackened mirror. What is the actual technique? How do you do it?
1: Well, I believe that setting the stage is very important. It's preparing yourself and, and your consciousness for this. The, the biggest obstacle that people have, especially if they're beginners, at any kind of psychic work, is suspending disbelief because if they have any sort of results at all, their first reaction is going to be, "Oh, I'm just making this up," or "That's what I thought would happen," or "That's what I hoped would happen," uh, when in fact they're probably having a genuine experience. So when when we do a workshop and I tell people that if you do this on your own, these are good things to do as well because you have. Uh, you make all all the uh, factors conducive to entering into this liminal space. It's liminal consciousness, and and the mirror really acts as a bridge, a bridge between ordinary consciousness and the astral plane and the spirit realm. So uh, it's important to do it in dim light. Doesn't matter whether it's day or night. Dim light will fatigue the physical eyes, and uh, I. Uh, I like playing a meditational music in the background, uh, not with lyrics, just music, and uh, um, doing um, a meditation uh, ritual before I begin um, of contemplating what I'm about to do, setting my intention. It's important to have a focus and intention to do any kind of, of psychic work. Now, when we do a workshop, uh, I do guide people through a meditation process. And I use some light hypnosis techniques to get people relaxed. Uh, and so uh, they try and get their busy brain out of the way. Uh, however, the mirror journey itself is uniquely personal. And so uh, I coach people on how to look into the mirror. You want to look in a very soft, unfocused way. You kind of let your gaze fall into the mirror. You don't want to see a reflection in it and even though it's black, uh, it, it is uh, reflective, and you position it so that you're seeing as little as possible in the environment, so that it's more like a blank slate, and that this then becomes a doorway to something else. And so you allow that doorway to open, and um, then you wait. Uh, you don't try to force anything uh, you you open up the door, you ask for some uh, contact with a particular person. Some people like to have it open, like, is there anybody there who can can come and, and meet with me and wait for things to happen? And for some people, to happen very quickly, and for other people, not. Um, people who have experience in psychic work and meditation usually get faster results than people who don't. But we've had uh, beginners who've never done any sort of work like that have uh, pretty phenomenal results. And we're just about, uh, the just just about out of
0: time. Oh. Sorry, are just about out of time. I just wanted to ask you. So, have you ever had anyone from the other side, perhaps a, a dearly departed a relative or so forth, come through uh, while Black Mirror scry?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, many times. Um, I've had um, my father and my mother and my grandmother come through, um, and most of the people in in the workshops, the sharing that we do afterwards, will report contact as well, and some of it's unexpected. It's not the person they ask for, but somebody else who winds up being very significant to them uh, shows up, and they have uh, some kind of meaningful contact, even with pets. And some that's ah. what some people want sometimes, is to connect with their pets on the other side.
0: Absolutely. Rosemary, we'll have to meet again on the other side. Uh, next month, we'll, uh, we'll do it all over again. It's a date. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Richard. Good night.
0: Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, visionaryliving.com. All right. Back next week with a brand new program and it'll be coming to you live from my little studio beneath the stairs. Hope you'll be along for that ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops, move over Aphrodite. I'm coming home or at least up the stairs. Good night. Amen.